as bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us this day, this opportunity to fellowship together, to break bread, the very bread of life. In your son's good name, Father, we're so grateful to be gathered together this way, each of us encouraged by the other's faith. Father, what a privilege it is to realize what grace and truth is and how it was manifest in your Son, our Lord. We do pray for those that can't be with us due to illness, and we pray, of course, for those that are still lost, that they be humbled before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening of rejoicing like this one a reality for us. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, effective evangelism review. I had no idea that he'd have me doing this. I loved that series so much. I listened to the first one. I can't remember when I listened to it, but I was so excited. Um, and then uh, it just was awesome. So thank you, Scott, by the way. It was just awesome. Thank you for listening to the Spirit, as always. Fantastic topic. Um, certainly worth a recap, according to God the Holy Spirit. So here we are this evening. We'll put off uh, The Lord is Our Confidence, Part 50. Um, just so you know, I had to actually go back and change the title. So I was going, and then he said, nope. Uh, changed the whole title to a review of this past week. So certainly, according to God, the Holy Spirit, uh, he wants to do a, a, a recap of the past week. Just sort of some of my thoughts, uh, uh, just some things that jumped out to me, maybe some clarification on this or that, as well as some uh, encouragement along the way. Uh, the centerpiece of this series, which was very interesting, was the law. That's a very interesting place to start a two-part series on evangelism. Uh, so the centerpiece was the law, specifically how it is used effectively with the emphasis on effectiveness in evangelism. I was immediately intrigued by this because few people seem to use the law as the entry point for evangelism, except those who use it religiously, which is really a shame to try to put people into bondage. If it's used properly, it's phenomenal. It's a tool like no other tool that we have available in our arsenal as evangelists. We noted that Jesus himself used the law to lead people to salvation by grace through faith. You know, that's, for a lot of people, they would say that's a funky statement. How do you include the word law in the same statement as by grace through faith? Because that's what the Bible says. Amen? That's literally what the Bible says. We have, there should be no incongruity whatsoever between the law proper and grace and truth. By grace through faith. Those things in our minds at this juncture should be married. Do you understand? Should be 
There should be no friction whatsoever in our souls. As a matter of fact, it's beautiful. Knowing that the law is the perfect word of God, that it represents his perfect righteousness, uh, that we can embrace it, that we don't have to skirt the issue, we don't have to talk around the issue. As a matter of fact, we are being encouraged by God, the Holy Spirit, to actually use the law in our efforts on evangelism. Uh, so just a side note, be careful never to think of the law and grace as opposites. Never think that. Think of it this way, which is true. God gave us the law as a grace gift. God gave us the law as a grace gift. The law has a real purpose in evangelism. That's how we look at the law. It was a grace gift to us. Go to Romans 7, verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. So I want you to think that way. God gave us the law as a grace gift. A lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, the law, it's oppressive. They get that adolescent bent to them, you know. I don't like to talk about the law because I've been oppressed by it in a previous religion. Throw that out. That's not God's fault. That's the religion's fault. You shouldn't have that attitude towards the law. The law is absolutely magnificent. So God gave us the law as a grace gift. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. How about that? And we'll get to the value of that. And the, another key word this evening is going to be the word value. We'll get to the value of that statement that Paul wrote in verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, in other words, the commandment was put there on purpose, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, couldn't help itself, in other words, right? Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. There's nothing for sin to oppose. Does that make sense? Hmm. So in the revelation of the law becomes the revelation of our sinfulness. Every time God puts a, lays a command out, we get to see how disgusting we are against that command. And that's a grace gift. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Again, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That's a beautiful thing. The very commandment that promised life, and this would be maybe thinking about it from his religious perspective, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And that would be from God's perspective because none of us can ever measure up. Remember, the giving of the law is a grace gift. It is most definitely not incompatible with grace. The law is most definitely not incompatible with grace. For whatever reason, uh, these two things have been set opposed to each other through religious practice and, let's face it, false doctrine. That people have been misled into almost not liking or not um, 
not rejoicing in the presence of the law. And that's a shame. So again, it is most definitely not incompatible with grace. In fact, we noted a brief, or through a brief study in the book of Acts, which was fantastic, by the way, uh, and I love how that was postured. Are we to forget about how people practically evangelized? Of course not. What did they use? Well, they used the law. So we noted through a brief study in the book of Acts that the law was the common device used by the apostles of Jesus to evangelize. It was the common device that they used. If we survey today's Christianity, what we find is either a religious perversion of or an objection to the law. Some have even marginalized it right out of the gospel presentation. Some dispensationalists supposing that since Jesus fulfilled the law that there's nothing more we can learn from it that its ability to teach us something is now gone. And that's a mistake. That's about the most ridiculous statement any budding evangelist could ever make. In fact, if you remove the law from the gospel conversation, you have to ask yourself, what do I have left as a tool to use to convict another person's conscience regarding their own depravity. In other words, what what would I use? If the law isn't there, isn't present, isn't in Holy Scripture, what shall I say? What do I say? Paul just said, listen, until the commandment came in, sin lied dead. There was nothing that was exciting the sin, right? Teshuka, you know, the whole idea. Nothing was exciting sin into action. So without the law, we have nothing to actually convict another person's conscience of regarding their own depravity. And I was thinking about that, how how genius Satan is. Satan's been very smart in getting this world to move away from the holiness of God. And that's what the law represents, by the way, because it is a perfect expression of the holy God of the universe. And when you take away the law, you're taking away from or you're subtracting from the revelation of the holy God of the universe. Because that's what the law represents. So Satan's been really smart in getting the world to move away from the holiness of God to suppose that there is no divine law to even adhere to, no divine standard that humanity is able to gather around. It's genius. And when this happens, there's no real impetus. And that's one of the key points from this past week. When this happens, when the law is pulled out of the equation, there's no real impetus for repentance because all one has to do is adjust the law, quote-unquote, their law, their version of the law, to suit their own sensibilities. They just make up their own law. Existentialism, you know, God is who I make him, God God is who I feel him to be, and therefore whatever he has to say, This is what I think he would have to say to me, right? I think God loves me, so I think he'd want me to be this way, or I think he'd want me to have this thing, or whatever. All bets are off at that point. And so how do you convict somebody when the target's moving, when the divine standard is here one day and then there the next day? So please keep these things in mind as I give you the, this visual example I gave Scott before I left on vacation 
certainly not a perfect, I think you alluded to it, Scott, certainly not a perfect illustration, but if I hold my hands like this, you see, about an inch apart, right? We might say that this is how much a person who's ignorant of God's righteous judgment against sin might value the gospel or the good news. They might say, okay, here it is. You're right. Here's, here's me because I'm pretty righteous, right? And here's God's righteousness. And um, this is how far it would take. Uh, this is how much I value the gospel because the gospel is the good news of how you get from here to here, let's say. So if you don't understand the, the, the distance uh, between these two things, you don't assign much value to the gospel, to the thing that can, you know, get you to that next step, get you, you know, into heaven. To them, the good news isn't all that great because, well, it's not a very long leap between, between where they think they are in terms of self-righteousness and God. So you see a decay, you see an erosive activity going on here when the law is not present. Because it allows people to get really close to God in their self-righteousness. Right? All they have to do is move the law around so that they get even closer and closer. It's that simple. On the other hand, if a person is forced to reconcile their own depravity against the perfect holiness of God, for example, by reconciling the law against their own brand of self-righteousness, this goes to this. You see the difference? When you're self-righteous, you think, oh, I'm pretty close. I, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty darn close. So anybody that can take me this far, I, I appreciate them this much. But if I give you the law, and the law says, <laughs> you're way over here and God's way over here, now look at how big that chasm is. Now you appreciate all the more what he's done for you to close that gap. You know that you can never make the leap at that point. Again, the, the law is a gift to do this very thing. In other words, in that second case, the value of the good news increases almost infinitely. And I don't know about you, but the longer I live and the more I understand the Word of God, the more depraved I realize I am because I read more and more of the commandments, I understand more of the heart of God, this distance gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that happens for anyone as they grow up in Christ. They become even more grateful. The bigger this chasm becomes, the more grateful you become, the more value you assign to the work that Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And the reason for all of that is actually very biblical. Go to Luke 7.47. Luke 7.47. Very biblical what I just described. And without the law, without some standard expressed by the holy God of the universe, to our benefit, this can't happen. We never have that chasm. We, that chasm never opens up. Luke seven forty seven. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, most of you know the principle here is the more a person realizes how much Christ's propitiatory work on the cross accomplished, how much did he accomplish? How far did he take you? That's the point. The more you realize that, the more you love the one who accomplished it for you. 
I love Jesus Christ pretty much every day even more. Why? Because every day I realize how much worse, what a, what a sinner I am. Every day I read the Word of God, I'm convicted. Am I condemned? No, He paid the price. I am so grateful for what He did on that cross. Again, the more a person realizes how much Christ's propitiatory work on the cross accomplished, the more they love the one who accomplished it for them. It turns out that love, the one thing most Christians want to show others, is actually severely hampered when we remove the law from the gospel presentation. This is what it looks like when it's present. This is what it looks like when it's not. Which one loves more? The one who's forgiven much? Loves much. Amen? The one who's forgiven little loves little. So which one's a greater expression? Which one affords you a greater estimation of God's love for you? You know the answer to that. So it turns out that love, the one thing most Christians want to show others, is actually severely hampered when we remove the law from the gospel presentation. If we miss the mark on presenting the law, we lose the magnitude that God has graciously put in place that equips us as evangelists. We lose it. If we present a gospel that is void of the law, We've essentially made our evangelistic efforts ineffective. <laughs> Let me say it again. If we present the gospel that is void of the law, we've essentially made our evangelistic efforts ineffective. And this past week's message was effective evangelism. Up here on the board, the love of God. God loves us beyond human comprehension. By giving us his law, he has provided us with the basis for understanding this love. You need to put those two together in your soul. By giving us his law, he, had, he has provided us with the basis for understanding this love. We find it magnified at the cross, where our transgressions against his perfect law are met with sacrifice. Too much is given, right? So that person loves, the one who's forgiven much loves much. I almost stated another doctrine there, didn't I? Again, the point, the love of God. God loves us beyond human comprehension. By giving us his law, he has provided us with the basis for understanding this love. So that gives us a whole new perspective on the presence of the law, doesn't it? I think so. We find it magnified at the cross where our transgressions against his perfect law are met with sacrifice. Jesus Christ uttered what is now possibly one of the most overused statements of all time. I've heard unbelievers use this statement. So therefore, I believe it's on the precipice of, of abuse. Go to John 8.31. John 8.31. John 8:31 <clears throat> The truth is that the law is perfect 
It's the expression of God, the holy God of the universe, and we'll never measure up. That's a grace gift. Do you understand? A grace gift from a God who loves you. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I've heard that as a punchline, far outside the confines of Christianity. As the Spirit pointed out this past week, as believers, it's our job to spread the truth about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just part of the truth, not just the truth that's not offensive, all of it. All of it. For he described, or Jesus Christ had described, that is, in John 1.14, as full of grace and truth. Our job is to spread the truth about him. So, when we use passages like John 8.31 and 8.32, we aren't to use them as punchlines in a truncated attempt at evangelism and then call it graciousness. We are not to do that. We don't use that as a punchline and then call it grace. Hence this past week's series titled Effective Evangelism. Not just evangelism, but effective evangelism. The whole truth. What makes it effective? The whole truth. Is the law truth? You bet it is. It's the perfect expression of the holy God of the universe. You bet it's truth. I mean, if there's a truth in this world, that's it. Effective evangelism. The whole truth must be present in order for evangelism to be effective. When we quote passages like John 8, 31 to 32, we are to complete the story with full integrity to the whole truth found in the word of God, for that is God's good intention. It's not up to us to fuss with it, to twist it, to truncate it, to add to it. It's not up to us to do any of that. It says the truth will make you free. The truth shall set you free. The truth. That's it. Not more, not less. The truth. And if we can all agree here based on Holy Scripture that the law is truth, then we have to include it in the discussion. We want a person to get to this point. We don't want to trick a person into thinking that the, that the concern of eternal life is based on this little chasm right here between their self-righteousness and God's righteousness. Because they might just make that mistake that a whole lot of so-called Christians make. Oh, it's just a short leap. I'm pretty close. Ask anybody in this area, you're going to go to heaven? I think I'm good enough. This is where they're at. Why? Because they haven't experienced this yet. They're still here. They've been lied to, many of them. Of course, they want the lie, you know. The whole truth makes all the difference in the world. When we do this, when we present the whole truth, an unbeliever is forced by the very presence of truth to repent. That's the beauty of the law. It forces their hand. Go to Acts 17.30. Acts 17, verse 30. An unbeliever, when faced with the very presence of truth, is forced to repent. 
Tell me that's not grace. Honestly, tell me that is not grace. What if God, you know, just, this would never happen, but what if God said, I'm not going to give him the law, I'm going to let him sit right around here. Right? What's a greater expression of love? Uh, uh, the law that takes us to this realization or the absence of it that keeps us somewhere in here? Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. How can he make such a command? Because the law, you see? Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's given us every reason, every grace gift to be able to repent in the first place. Alice is getting ticked off, so she's throwing pens. I don't know. You're going to have to repent, Alice. As the Spirit pointed out this past week, repentance is the precursor to salvation. And you know what? That's a non-negotiable reality in the Bible. It's non-negotiable. You don't get to heaven without repentance. It's that simple. In other words, without repentance, there is no saving faith. Jesus himself demanded that a person reconcile their depravity against God's holiness in order to make a decision to believe in him. It was non-negotiable. Matter of fact, this week's blog is titled, The Gospel is a Command. The Gospel is a Command, which speaks directly to this principle. As a side note, an arrogant attempt to reconcile with God always fails. Therefore, we must allow God to reconcile us to himself through Christ. That's part of the command. And the precursor to all of that is our understanding of our depravity. And what helps us get there, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is the, is the law. Scott likes to think of it as a transfer of trust, which really is the same thing as saying a person places their faith or trust in Christ instead of the myriad alternatives. So, when the Bible commands a person believe in Jesus Christ, it is commanding that a person believe not just, and I think this is one of the grave errors um, in contemporary Christianity, not just in who he is, but also what he is, Messiah. Not just who he is. Do you believe, if you ask any so-called Christian, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I do. I do. What about him? What is he to you? Plainly state, stated, a person won't seek a Messiah that doesn't understand their need for him. Their need for him. Woe to the evangelist who skips this step. Woe to the evangelist who skips this step. Here's a fact. A perceived need is what precipitates seeking. The analogy to that point, a perceived need is what precipitates seeking. The analogy is, if you're thirsty, what do you seek? A drink, right? Yeah. 
you weren't thirsty, you wouldn't seek a drink. This is what the scene was in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. She was thirsty, so she went to the well for water. And what ended up happening ultimately was that she got her spiritual thirst quenched by her Messiah, who used her trip to the well as an analog to the salvation message itself. Here's another basic fact. All unbelievers are thirsty. Why? Because they spend their lives drinking from the wrong well. Up here on the board, John 4.14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. On the contrary, if a person denies their thirst for the truth in their arrogance, they don't seek a drink from this well that leads to eternal life. If you're this far away from having your thirst quenched, how thirsty are you? Not very. If you're this far, you're pretty darn thirsty. As the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, why would anyone seek a solution in the absence of a perceived problem? They wouldn't. I think the difficulty comes in a covert form of arrogance that seems to have infected contemporary Christian thinking. So concentrate on this. We mistake. Who's our prototype? Jesus Christ. Who's the greatest evangelism of all time? Jesus Christ. We mistake the meekness of Christ as weakness. Don't ever do this. We mistake the meekness of Christ as weakness. Don't ever do that. Christ was meek. He even suggested the following. Up here on the board, this is Holy Scripture. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. And meek just means the submissive. Blessed are the meek, the submissive, for they shall inherit the earth. Being submissive, does that make you weak or strong in Christ? Hmm. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, said Paul. When I try to puff myself up and beat my chest, that's when I'm weak. When I'm being meek, that's when I'm at my strongest. When I'm the most submissive, the most obedient, that's when I'm at my greatest point of strength. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the meek, the submissive, for they shall inherit the earth. Christ was meek, but he was the exact opposite of weak. He is our prototype. Remember that. He was meek, but the exact opposite of weak. I think this is a great place to take pause because I fear maybe even some of you have missed the point. Or maybe have been adversely affected by the subtlety I'm highlighting here. I hear a lot nowadays about the love of God turn on the TV or, uh, you know, watch a, or hear a message from some mega church or something like that, some real popular thing. You hear a lot about the love of God. That's how I believe um, some of these women, these giant women pastors who shouldn't even call themselves pastors because there's no such thing, have giant ministries because all they preach is the, the so-called love of God. But it's twisted, you see. It's twisted. 
Remember, you have to present somebody with the truth about their depravity. Those people would say that's not very loving. They would say that's offensive. You're pushing somebody down. You're oppressing them. We're supposed to lift them up. You know, Jesus was all about love. You know, we're supposed to lift them up. No, before they're lifted up, they have to be pushed all the way down. Woe to the evangelist who leaves that stuff out. That's the point. So I hear a lot about the love of God nowadays and his grace also. And trust me, I understand it for if, or if for no other reason than I understand how very far he has plucked me from the throes of spiritual death. I get it. Those things are there. The love of God, absolutely. The grace of God, absolutely. But they don't function in a vacuum, especially when it comes to the gospel. And, you know, for me, my hands are somewhere out here right now. And each day I grow older, they go further and further out. We hear a lot about the love of God, but the question is, you ready? How loving is it to exclude the grace gift that leads one to repentance, a.k.a. the law? How loving is it to exclude the grace gift that leads one to repentance from the gospel presentation? Keep what I'm saying in mind as we continue to review. That is, again, that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength by God's standards. We are never to weaken the gospel message in an attempt to lay a false claim to meekness. We are never to weaken the gospel message. We do not have that right. So on this principle that we've been perched on the last week, effective evangelism, up here on the board, presenting the gospel isn't an aw shucks moment. Rather, it's a moment where absolute truth matters most. If there's any point in time where you open up that mouth of yours, to be true, to be accurate, it's when you're talking about Christ. It's when you're presenting somebody with the good news about Christ. Not just who he was, but what he was. The Messiah. And why a person would even need him in the first place. Again, presenting the gospel isn't an aw shucks moment. Rather, it's a moment where absolute truth matters most. It is supremely ungracious to water down the truth in the Word of God in order to keep your speech palatable. And then call it something like meekness. Well, I don't, you know, oh, well, uh, I, you know, oh, I just don't offend anybody. Your, your hair and your shiny teeth are offensive. You can laugh. You're, you're disgusting. You, are, you, you will not... You will not represent Christ, who was meek. You are not submissive. Christ was. You are not. Submission means to tell the whole truth, because that's what we've been commissioned to do, to tell the whole truth, which means we don't have any, we don't have any say in it. We don't have a play in this game. Our job is to present 
the truth. If we need to use the law to convict somebody and see their conscience convicted, then we do it. That's what leads a person to repentance. That's what presses them low so that they can realize, this is how far I am from being saved. I need a Savior. I can't make the leap on my own. Presenting the gospel isn't an aw shucks moment. Rather, it's a moment where absolute truth matters most. It is supremely ungracious to water down the truth in the Word of God in order to keep your speech palatable and then have the audacity to call it meekness. So let's get a little more perspective on this, specifically when we exercise strength in meekness. Go to 1 Peter 3.14. 1 Peter 3.14. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength. When you're submissive, you're strong. A submissive person presents the law of God and says, see, this is why you need a Savior. You don't measure up at all to this standard. 1 Peter 3.14 But it's not that, quote, easy, is it? We're weak. We still have a flesh. But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be meek but strong. Do it with gentleness and respect. Meek but strong. Don't compromise. Having, keeping, in other words, a good conscience. How do you do that as an evangelist? You don't compromise. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, because a lot of people don't even like, let's face it, a lot of people don't like what I'm teaching right now. In, within Christian ranks. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, and it will happen, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, in other words, your obedience, your meekness, your submissiveness, that's what good behavior looks like. We've been learning that for months now. Obedience. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, if we are to apply Peter's wisdom to our current topic of study, what we conclude is that the whole truth about Jesus Christ, who's called the rock of offense in the Bible, is actually designed to offend others. I've taught this in the past. If, if your gospel presentation isn't offending people in some way, their flesh specifically, if it's accommodating to the flesh, if, if you've perverted it by leaving a few things out, then you're not presenting it honestly. It's designed to make people stumble. It's designed to make people stop in their tracks. The law is designed to do that, is it not? Yeah. It's actually designed to offend others. And as most of, all, uh, most of you will attest, 
when we stir the souls of others, it's like often, it's like striking a hornet's nest. And if you've ever been stung by a hornet, you know that it hurts. We call that suffering. More specifically, we call that suffering for doing good, as Peter alluded to in 1 Peter 3.17. You give somebody the law and you show them their depravity, they're probably going to try to bite your head off. Right? They really are. They're going to tell you, oh, you're, you're, you're judging me. I'm not judging you. I'm not the judge. God is. But here's his law, and if you don't measure up, you will be judged, unless you believe in the one who took that judgment on himself. That's the setup, right? That's the setup. But people don't like being set up, do they? The human flesh does not like being set up at all. And the law does just that, and that's a good thing. It makes it stumble. It's offensive to the flesh, to the core. Good. If, the, if that human, disgusting human flesh liked your gospel, what say you of your gospel? If your gospel isn't offensive, in other words, if it's inviting all kinds of unbelievers into your church, what say you of that gospel? If droves of unbelievers can, quote, survive and flourish and go on and on in a church, what say you of that gospel? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not very offensive at all. Matter of fact, it's inviting. That's right, a different gospel, different Jesus from a different spirit. It's inviting. That's how these, some of these megachurches are actually constructed. Lies. They teach love but not the law. They teach grace but not justice or judgment. It's a lopsided God. It's a sales pitch. It's accommodating to the human flesh, and it lies to everybody. And that's what we're fighting against. And you will suffer for doing that good, for speaking up on behalf of Christ. That's what Peter alluded to in 1 Peter 3.17, which requires a certain strength in meekness. That's the point. Suffering for doing good requires a certain strength that we find in meekness, in submissiveness to the Great Commission, for example. That's where we find our strength. Without jumping the gun too much here, suffice to say that love expressed biblically results in suffering. In fact, it resulted in Christ's death on the cross. What, was he, what, what, what did Jesus come to do? To seek and to save that was which lost. That's the greatest expression of love. They hung him for it. They hung him for expressing love. He suffered the ultimate price. They killed him. That's where love gets you. <laughs> True love. Love that says, hey, listen, here's the law. Like it or lump it, our sovereign gave it to us. You don't measure up. I guess you kind of need a savior. You might get killed for that. People getting, I'm sure, somewhere in this world, what are we, up to 7, 8 billion people? Someone got killed today. Someone got martyred for Christ because they wouldn't back down from the truth. So the cross, think of Christ's death on the cross. That's a picture of what we are up against. The more we love, the more we suffer. Even so, we aren't to shy away from our responsibilities to the one who saved us and has commanded us henceforth 
to evangelize others. There's a whole bunch of folks in heaven right now that we rightly call martyrs for Christ. People who died defending this truth. People who died defending the truth. And so you have to think, you, you have to think, would you die this day, given the same opportunity? Would you die for Christ? Don't be too hard on yourself either. Peter didn't make it, what, 20 steps? He's like, I don't know, three times. So don't, don't be too hard on yourself. But it's a fair question, you see. Would you die this day, given the same type of opportunity as any one of the martyrs in heaven? Jesus died. Most of his apostles died as martyrs, just saying. Let's press on. This past week's mission was to lay out effective evangelism. The concept of effective here implies that we do something, that we aren't merely hearers, but doers, a la James 1.22. The meek submit to marching orders. Remember Peristemi? Pick up your marching orders. Present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. That's what the meek do. They submit to marching orders. We can't be effective evangelists without being doers. That's the point. What the Spirit had Scott highlight was one effective way of positioning the gospel conversation with unbelievers. In other words, the Spirit gave us a, a sound, foolproof strategy for evangelism. That was the beauty of it. He gave us the strategy. I think of a lot of, to be kind and to be honest and to be upfront, I think of a lot, or I think a lot of uh, well-intentioned believers need to hear this message because while they want to evangelize, they don't know how to, per se. Their heart's good, but they just don't know where to start. So I was thinking about, that made me think about, you remember the first time you had to write a story in school? Probably like an elementary school, right? Teachers like, hey, why don't you, oh, my favorite, tell me what you did over the summer. Uh, uh. Like every, for like almost every grade in grade school. And so, you know, think about that time. And remember, I remember sitting there and saying to myself, I don't know how to get started. You want me to write a paragraph or a page? I don't know how to get started. I know what I want to say, but I don't know how to start off. I'm stuck. They might call it writer's block. I guess I did more mature stage, but... I know what I want to say, I don't know how to start. This is why in elementary school, teachers show students how to get started. They give you little strategies, right? Say, okay, start off with a topical sentence, or if, I don't know, I'm doing this wrong probably. Tammy's like, that's all wrong. <laughs> we have the same education being manifest in the past few messages from this pulpit. The Spirit is showing us how to get started in evangelism. How do you get started? More specifically, how to start the conversation with another person rather than simply asking, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I'm not saying that's dead in the water question. It has to come up eventually. But that seems to be um, jumping the gun maybe a little bit in many ways. 
People say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And when the person says, oh, yes, of course, you simply agree to depart from one another. And you're like, good. Well, you never really know if this person really believes in the person and work of Christ. Why was it necessary that he humbled himself to the point of death? Why was that necessary? Here's a friendly reminder. Christ didn't die for nothing. He didn't die for nothing. It's double negative for the sake of illustration or emphasis. It just means he died for something, but he didn't die for nothing. He didn't do what he did for no reason. However, the way contemporary Christianity presents the gospel, you think he died for an invitation only, where sin is a distant second on the docket. Did he die just so you could be given, you could invite him, you'll read the blog, that's my favorite, you could invite him into your realm. Like he's pathetically standing over there. Okay, okay, come on. I'll invite you in. As if he's going to move to use in that way. That God's not holy. <laughs> what did he die for if there's nothing to repent from? No perceived transgression against the sovereign of the universe. Here's an unpopular statement. The cross represents judgment. Do, do people remember that? I'm not sure. The cross represents judgment. Jesus was filled with a certain joy in being given the opportunity to take that judgment upon himself. That's what the greatest love we've ever known did. So the cross represents judgment. And for a joy set before him, he went to the cross. But, again, we mustn't belittle this work itself by simply focusing on the love that took him there. We have to first recognize, why did the cross even exist? God's judgment at Calvary was very real, with a definite purpose and a finished work. It seems many people only want to talk about the cross in terms of love, but not judgment, because it's so ghastly and offensive to human sensibilities. Effective grace, up here on the board. It's much more gracious to tell the whole truth about Jesus than only offer or only the unoffensive parts. It's much more gracious to tell the whole truth about Jesus than only the unoffensive parts. It's not gracious that you're making the message of the gospel less offensive. Let's put it that way. That's not a gracious act. That's an ungracious act. You're robbing somebody of the truth. What sets someone free? The truth. You cannot rob somebody of the truth and then expect that principle to hold. 
It's much more gracious to tell the whole truth about Jesus than only the unoffensive parts. Jesus intended for all to know him as Savior from certain spiritual death, that condition in which all are born into. For example, to get to the meat and potatoes of our two-part series on effective evangelism, Jesus used the law as the proof point of one's need for a Savior. He used it himself. This is why you need me. <laughs> it's arguably the greatest tool we have ever been given in evangelism. Is it truth? 100%. Is it condemning? Yep. No one except Jesus has ever been able to live up to it. Go to James 2, verse 10. James 2, verse 10. No one's ever been able to live up to it. That is the point. That, my friends, is the point. No one's ever been able to live up to it. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. To Scott's point on street evangelism, how, who in their right mind is ever going to say that they've perfectly held up the law, that they've never lied, they've never stolen, they've never looked at someone with, with uh, the wrong way, with covetousness. They've never done any of that stuff. They've never had an idol. Who's possibly ever going to say that they've done that perfectly for their whole life? No one. No one in their right mind. And what does the Bible say? If you broke one point, if you did it even once, if you went 70 years, perfect, and then on your last day tripped up, you're guilty of the whole law. You're no different than the, than the murderer in prison, necessarily speaking, because that thing takes you Im immediately and infinitely away from the perfect holiness of God. And now you need a Savior. Again, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's the whole point. In short, this means that we're all guilty before God. And if we're honest, we are really guilty before Him. <laughs> Again, the more we learn the more we realize how much we've been forgiven from. The more we realize that, the more we what? Love. That's why the gospel is that it's the gift that just keeps on giving. It's maybe the only gift that keeps on like growing, right? It just keeps getting larger and it, it, it enlarges the more we learn about Christ. It's incredible. And it it enlarges because we realize how depraved we really are and how very... We don't know. Anybody, anybody here, raise your hand if you think you know how much work it was for him to die for you personally. How many sins total you have that he died. You've sinned, you don't even know it. Sometimes you like read the Bible like, oh man, I've been doing that for years. Didn't realize it was a sin. Let's face it, half the time we don't even care. We don't even care. The way we talk to one another, it's gross. The, the type of coarse jesting that flings back and forth between, even in the church, I'm just as guilty. We're a little flipping about it. It's like, meh, he died for that. 
We don't even think about this stuff, the stuff, the, the depth of his love for us. So if we're honest, we are really guilty before him. For he is holy and we are riddled to the core with sin. So the critical point, and I'm out of time, the critical point that the Spirit made in our short series was up here on the board, effective evangelism. In his evangelism, Jesus often used the law to lead people to a knowledge of their sins against God. That's the first step. It's beautiful. It's a grace gift from God. Having the law available to you as an evangelist is a grace gift. Not only do you get to reflect upon it in your own spiritual walk, in the, in the gospel itself, and your love for him expands and enlarges over time, you get to use that thing as the primary tool in evangelism. In all the strength of, uh, the strength of your argument, if you want to call it, the strength of your approach is no longer on your shoulders. It's on the law. The law gladly takes it off of the burden off of you. It says, go ahead, direct their attention to me, says the law. Direct their attention to me. Let them wrangle with me. And when they come to terms with it, they'll know they'll need a Savior. They know they need to repent at that point. We looked at Matthew 5, 17 to 30, Luke 18, 18 to 20, John 4, 16 to 18. I'll close this way. Why would Jesus, the greatest evangelist of all time, choose to use the law this way? Simply said, it's effective. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word, truth that sets us free, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a world that's just lost and decaying, Father. We just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.